the basis of meditation is reflecting back on yourself. It's like Socrates said, know yourself. So you reflect back on yourself. And then you begin to see, sometimes you can begin to see the thought before the action appears. Actually, behind every emotion, in my experience, there's an idea. There's a thought in there that causes that emotion to appear. So if you see that and become clear about it, your emotion won't control you. In fact, your emotion will change. It's hard to do because we focus so much on outside things. And we believe, you know, money will give me satisfaction. Love, whatever that is, will give me satisfaction. You know, we, we think that satisfaction is going to come from outside things. But that is always coming and going. The only true satisfaction is realizing yourself, your true nature. Then your whole life can become an art. I mean, it can become creative because you interact with everything that appears. You become one and then you function. Zen Master Debong was born in 1950 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He studied psychology at university and later worked as a psychiatric counselor in a hospital and as a welder in a shipyard. But after hearing Zen Master Sung San speak in 1977, he quit to pursue the Dharma, living and practicing with his teacher full-time at different Zen centers around the world. Zen Master Debong ordained as a monk in 1984 and received Inca, or permission to teach, in 1992. He was given transmission to become a Zen master in 1999. He presently serves as Abbot and Bo Shil, resident Zen master of Musangsa International Zen Center in Korea. He is also the regional Zen master in Asia for the Quantum School of Zen. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are eligible for a free month of training using the promo code Sit, Breathe, Bow, all one word. Zen Master Devangsanim, you heard Zen Master Sung San speaking in New Haven, 1977. And there was something about his speech that said, this is somebody I want to follow. You ended up quitting your job and, and, and following him all over the world. Was it something in his words or was the question that you were living with that just caused that to happen? What brought you to that point? When, when I look back at uh, things, uh, one of the big uh, questions in my life, which I remember thinking about, you know, uh, in primary school, and I'm sure at some point, everybody thinks about like what's going on here is uh why is there all this suffering around me and in the world and what can we do about it 
and um, uh, by some circumstance, I was chosen with a group of four kids to go to an international camp in uh, Japan in 1962 for the summer. And the idea was to get kids around 11 years old from different countries together. They become friends. And when they grow up, hopefully they will uh, help create peace, you know, among different countries because they already got friends in these different countries. So anyway, uh, during that trip, we were taken around. And one thing that I, uh, we went to Kamakura, which has this very large outdoor Buddha. And it's the first time I saw Buddha. I didn't, I had never heard of Buddhism. And I immediately got this deep feeling. He understands suffering and how to take it away. And you know, at that time in America, the I was the 1950s, civil rights and the Cold War were a really big thing. Uh, I was aware of it. I don't know whether it was because my parents talked about these things or in school. You know, I grew up in Philadelphia with white kids, black kids, all the religions or, or you know, at least the, the basic Western religions represented Protestant, Catholic, Jewish. I don't think there were any kids who were Muslim at the time. But, uh, you know, so I was aware of these things. I was aware of World War II. I grew up, you know, reformed. Jew in America. So I was aware of the Holocaust. Uh, my family came to America in the 1870s. So we didn't, you know, have personal experiences of that. We were pretty rooted in America. And, uh, you know, America was a good place for, for Jews. Uh, you didn't have to look over your shoulder all the time. Uh, so my family didn't have that kind of uh, worries. But I was very aware of that. And I remember also looking down the street I lived on when I was 10 years old and the houses were nice. They weren't that big, but they were all well built. They were all individual. There were trees on the street. Everybody had a car. And I remember thinking, it's so beautiful here, but I know inside the houses, people have all kinds of suffering. So I was aware that, um, of course, our economic situation made our life comfortable, but still there was all this suffering going on. Usually, you know, the 1950s silently <laughs> in these middle-class yeah. families. And so I got this sense that economic success alone is not going to be enough. Anyway, when I saw the Buddha, I just thought, this guy got it, you know? And I remember thinking that occasionally through my teens. And then of course in college, the Vietnam War, and we were interested in things like Buddhism and yoga and Zen. Uh, my big question was uh, how to overcome the suffering I personally felt and in the world. And so I protested against the war. And, uh, you know, part of me wanted to be a soldier, but I didn't think it was a good place to do that, you know, fight. Uh, I don't mind fighting, but I, I just thought this didn't make any sense to me. It wasn't helping our country. It wasn't helping others. In any case, uh, I remember going to a, one of the big demonstrations in Washington and seeing uh, the, the, the police and, and young people fighting. And of course, at that time, it was before people started to get killed. Um, I just thought, wow, everybody's angry. I don't know if it'd be so good if we were in power either. And so after that, I started to study psychology. Maybe politics isn't 
my route for solving the suffering of the world. Uh, and I worked in psychology and I was very fortunate to study it and work at the same time. Uh, during college, I had a part-time job in the local psychiatric hospital. So I could see that our intellectual life was always bigger than our intellectual understanding. And that really struck me. So after working in that realm, two years in college, three years out of college, I felt that academic education isn't going to give me wisdom. And being fairly lost, I ended up uh, studying pottery, back to the land, kind of, you know, long haired stuff. And uh, <laughs> uh, for some reason, I ended up welding because I supported myself. And I ended up helping build a nuclear submarine in Groton, Connecticut. Oh. And my friends were horrified because they were getting their PhDs or they were becoming lawyers for legal aid. And the war, the Vietnam War is over now, and I'm building a weapon for the Navy, you know. But I had an amazing yeah. year because uh, I learned a lot. Socially, 10,000 guys in the yard and women. And one guy I met had gone to university. Everybody's background was working class out of the military. And I lived with everybody down there. And it was quite amazing. But during that time, I started to get a very strong feeling I wanted to meet a Buddhist master. And I looked around and the first master I met actually was Sung Sansani. Uh, and I went to a Dharma talk he gave in New Haven. And I remember somebody asked him, what is sanity? What is insanity? I think it was a professor. And I thought, oh, this is my realm. You know, I used to be in this realm, this area. And then Sung San Sanim said, if you're very attached to something, you're very crazy. If you're a little attached to something, you're a little crazy. If you're not attached to anything, that's not crazy. And I thought, that's better than my 10 years of studying and working in psychology. Because <laughs> it cut across everything. It had nothing to do with whether you're successful in society or people look up to you. It didn't matter if you're a religious person. If you're attached, you're crazy. Then, you know, so I was like, whoa, that is really clear. And I thought, oh, then he continued talking. And he said, so... In this world, everybody's crazy because everybody's attached to I, but this I doesn't exist. It's only made by thinking. If you don't want to attach to your thinking I and realize your true I, you must practice Zen. So I just thought, that's my teacher. So six weeks later, I, I did, well, during those six weeks, I, I sat two three-day retreats and one three-day chanting retreat. And then I quit my job and moved in the Zen Center. <laughs> yeah, oh, kaboom. <laughs> now, it's so interesting that you said that you wanted to be a soldier because, you know, there's part of me that always wonders, like, what is it that makes somebody want to become a monk? And you became, a, you ordained in 1984. But from what I understand, you'd gone to see... Uh, Desan's name like four years earlier or something like that and, and said, I want to be, you know, I want to ordain. And he was like, why? <laughs> like he didn't, it's like he didn't let, he didn't just say, yeah, sure, come on. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went, I had lived in the Zen Center one year, so I think it was in the spring and worked outside, you know, to make money to pay to live there. And my social life evolved. We did a lot of formal practice. We were trying to build up a community. People would come and go. Outside people who had careers or family or whatever would come and practice. And uh, one day I went in to talk to him and I said, sir, I want to be a monk. And he said, why? And I shouted, why not? And it suddenly was clear to me, I don't know why. And then he was great. He said to me, no, why is very important. He said, if why is clear, then whole way, no problem. Then he told me there's two kinds of sanims, you know, monk and nun. He said, feeling sanim and correct sanim. Feeling sanim has a feeling, you know, I want a simple life, or I love this temple, uh, or I feel connected to this mountain or society hurt me, I want to leave society, whatever, has a feeling and becomes a sanim. But he said feelings always change. So if you become a sanim for feeling, then what will happen when the feeling changes? Then your direction's broken. He said correct sanim means perceive this world, perceive my job, then become sanim. Then any situation, any condition, any feeling, anything, you can keep your direction. So I, you know, I said, wow, thank you. And then I asked him, what should I do? And he was very interesting. He really just reflected in my mind. He mentioned the strongest lay person who lived in the Zen center, who had a family, and the strongest monk, young guy, who lived in the Zen center. And he said, you follow them, which meant basically mm. I realized I'm going to have to figure out what's my direction. <laughs> What's my way in terms of life? You know, do I want to be a lay person? Do I want to be a Sanim? So six years later, I became a monk. <laughs> oh, six years. Wow. Well, in the meantime, yeah, about about six months. When I first came to the Zen Center, of course, I, 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 I had girlfriends in the past. And I looked at the women and I thought, you know, this, this, and this. But I decided I don't want to get involved with anybody because, you know, that makes things more complicated. I wanted to understand what's Buddha's teaching, what's Sung San Sanim's teaching, what is this practice? So for two years, I didn't get involved with anybody. But at about a year after this talk with Sung San Sanim, I think I got lonely. So I started to look at one woman and she started to look at me and San Sanim saw that. <laughs> and he ended up talking to each of us and kind of pushing us together. And so I got married oh. <laughs> and I lived in the Zen. Wait, really? Yeah, yeah I got married I didn't know this. in the Zen center and I lived in the Zen center with my wife. And after about two, two and a half years, the whole relationship totally exploded. And I went to sit a three month retreat. And during the retreat, oh. I kind of got it. Why did this relationship not work? A few things really hit me during the retreat. One of them was... I don't have a husband's mind. I don't want a separate life. Uh, I don't want to make a family. I don't want to have my own car, my own apartment. I don't want a career. All I want to do is Zen practice. Uh, I'm literally formal practice and my work in the world by that time, I really felt was helping make practicing places. And communities where people could come and learn to practice and they could come and go i love that you know that it was totally open door 
in and out. And uh, Sansanim's teaching was very wide so that he was able to teach anybody, I felt, in any situation in life, how to apply Buddha's teaching to your life. And I love that, you know? So I didn't think one way is better than the other. It's you choose your way, but here's material and, and a practice that will help you do it uh, in the most beneficial way. And I liked that he, uh, you know, a lot of his effort was teaching people, but also helping make places where people could come and learn to practice. And that was my life's work. So it just made sense to be a, a Sanim. So uh, some time after the retreat, I went to him and I said, I want to be a Sanim. And that time he just said, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was mentioning this to you in the intro, but I, I had just heard this story about um, how you would, you, you know, somebody was telling me the story about how you'd gotten upset at, at Zen Master Sung San. And then I was watching these videos and, and you told the story about getting upset at him, uh, but how it was so great because then you were able to sort of step back from the relationship of the teacher to really find what was true about your relationship. So there wasn't an attachment there. And I, I sort of just, you know, I'm, asking about this because you know so often people who are practicing they they really want a teacher or they really um they're really looking for guidance and it's you know it's it's hard sure <laughs> sometimes sure and uh i'm wondering if you could say a little bit about because you've spent you spent so much time with zen master sung san um what it was like to be sort of both, I guess, in the presence of someone who's so charismatic, but then also realizing, yeah, this is my own. I have to do this on my own as well. Yeah. Or maybe I'm, yeah, you know, maybe I, I got you know, it wrong. When you say that, yeah, I have to do this on my own as well. I don't know where that came from, but I kind of understood that right in the beginning. I, I kind of already mm. understood that somehow. So I, when I met Santanim, I believed that he really had had experienced, had attained what he was talking about. And I certainly found through the years that I, I feel his speech and his actions did match. And I also felt, I don't know why, but I felt he's also a human being. I mean, I didn't think about this, but when I look back, I realized, I realized, oh, he's a human being. So I didn't expect him to be perfect, you know, um, and that helped a lot. And it fit his speech. You know, I remember he said once, uh, everybody makes mistakes. Even Zen masters make mistakes. How soon they correct are important. So anyway, but of course I, I had some attachment to him. I needed him, definitely. I needed his guidance and I needed his uh, kind of uh, ability to uh, keep his center. Um, and, uh, but <laughs> one I think what I trusted was the relationship. It wasn't the person, mm. you know. I did trust him as a person. I felt he was very sincere and that his speech and actions did match, which is great. You know, it's like somebody who's inconsistent is harder to 
uh, trust and even a bad person who's constantly bad and honest about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. but I felt he, I trusted him. And, um, but I remember, I think the incident uh, you're talking about, I must, I'm sure I've talked about before. I was still a lay person and I was in Los Angeles, uh, living in the Zen center. And one day he said something to me and turned and walked away. And I right away started to feel bad. And I, uh, I honestly don't remember at all what he said or what it was about. But immediately, this thought came into my mind at the time. Well, f you, you know, I'm not going to let you make mm -hmm. me feel bad. And I just threw it off, you know. And then I was amazed at myself. Wow, I love this person and I trust them. And, well, I guess if they say something I don't think is true, I just throw it out and forget about it. And uh, it, it was, I thought to myself, wow, are you growing up a little bit? <laughs> you know, but I never <laughs> thought about it at all. So I have no idea what it was he said, but I must have felt that it wasn't valid. And uh, I didn't feel I had to say anything to him about it either. I just threw it off. <laughs> but do you think that, I love that idea of like, you grow up a little bit, like just sort of in the journey of the, of the practitioner, right? There must be some moment of sort of maturity where it's like, this person has given me so much and it's time for me to kind of, you know, I have my own center now as well, or it's, it's starting to develop. Sure. Where you're able to. Same thing as growing up in childhood. Yeah. You know, right. you, you you learn a lot from your parents and your parents aren't perfect. And one day you just have to be responsible for everything that happens to you. <laughs> That's all. That's our big problem in society now. It's unbelievable, but it seems like it's spreading everywhere. Everybody is a victim of somebody else. This is one of the biggest mm. problems because there, if you think of yourself as a victim, you're not going to get any wisdom and you're not going to become mm. clear. And even the six patriarchs said, there's no such thing as a victim. The only thing that makes you a victim is thinking of yourself as a victim. So this is very hard for mm. people to accept that I'm responsible for everything that happens to me. In Buddhism, it's not difficult. It just means whatever appears now is the result of something I did in the past. You know, um, very few teachings have the past. Everything begins when you're born, and then you do something with it. But there's no teaching about how, why did this situation appear? But in Buddhism, it's clear. Somehow, we don't know what, what it wasn't an entity like me in a past life made this. But in a sense, it is. You know, right. somehow, I'm responsible for everything that happens to me. And it's hard to think of that at is a baby, but actually, sad to say, it's true. It's my karma. But if we take responsibility for that, then we have some control and a choice in what we do. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we're just controlled by our karmic habit. And to think that you're a victim is putting you at the mercy of your karma. 
And unfortunately, it right. is rampant all over the world. Everybody wants to think they're a victim of the government, of this people, of those people, of the low people, the high people, the rich people, the poor people, my parents, everything. And you'll never get out of your karmic uh, suffering that way. So it's just growing up, you know? Most people at some point, they blame their parents for things, you know? I did, mm -hmm. you know? I, I had lots mm -hmm. of fights with my parents. I remember thinking, if they hadn't made me, I wouldn't have this suffering, you know? <laughs> but at some point, you got to realize you made yourself. You chose your family. You chose your body. I mean, it's hard, hard to imagine this, but if you really get it, then you have, that's true freedom. Yeah. And you've got, you can decide what you're going to do now. And if you really get it, of course, you have compassion and sympathy for others. But there is an issue of justice, right? So how do, how do you... Justice is your idea. Uh-huh. So somebody thinks, yeah, somebody thinks, you know, the World Trade Center went down. Somebody thinks, you know, yeah. we were attacked. Justice is bringing these people and punishing them. But other people think uh -huh. that's punishment for what you did to me. I know a lot yeah. of people in the world who, who they didn't think it was a tragedy. They thought, oh, now America knows what it's like to get bombed. It's not saying one's right, one's yeah. wrong. It's just we don't see cause and effect. So we cannot solve our problems. Even if I win this time, I'll lose next time. But if you see cause and effect clearly, you can solve the problems of your life. And until individuals do that, society won't be able to do it. Yeah, it's very sad. It comes back to the individual. You know, um, Mago Sananda said it very nicely, but it's just nice talking unless we really take it to heart and do it. A peaceful heart makes a peaceful person. A peaceful person makes a peaceful family. A peaceful family makes a peaceful village. A peaceful village makes a peaceful country. A peaceful country makes a peaceful world. It all begins with me. Hmm. Yeah. So I think I got that from the experience of interacting, for me, with Sung Sang Sanin. I was able to do the work, basically on my own. But... What, you know, without others, you can't do it. I mean, maybe Buddha did. I don't know. But uh, we are others. <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just giving this talk on dependent origination. And, you know, there's one way of looking at it, which is, you know, it can be very nihilistic, I think, for some people to be like, you have no essence. <laughs> mm -hmm. But then there's this incredible potential that's also there where you where it comes from, oh yeah, I see this and I take responsibility for it all. And then everything becomes possible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, but that's true. You know, um, we say uh, uh, this is not just a human world, you know. It's a dog world and a cat world, elephant world and uh, uh, air world, water world. And, you know, it's in the teachings of all the most of the religions, you know, we're all one. But 
it, uh, we have to actually realize it in a way that's beyond any thought and then and then not attached to the thoughts and the words of our teaching whatever it is and then we can really connect with uh, people and uh, you know that's the that's the root i think and that's the root of people suffering they they don't uh, feel full connected and then you know we we yeah, all this... develop our habits for how we understand connecting and then we repeat it all the time and some of it is quite um not helpful you had this great quote that i'm, I'm just going to paraphrase slightly uh saying water doesn't actually quench your thirst you you just have to do it um but you never actually get to the experience of whatever this life is until you question what's getting in the way. And then you had this line where you said, it's sad to see people put in so much effort to produce such minimal results. And I was, re I was just so struck by that line where you must see a lot of people come, practice, they're doing a lot of training, and I didn't know if you meant they're getting such minimal results in the Dharma room or they're just getting such minimal results in life where, you know, they are filling their time and just not getting anything. I, but it, it hit me so hard in the sense of thinking of all of these people and maybe even myself, you know, just kind of grinding it out. And it's no, no, no. I wasn't not... thinking about practicing when I said that or practicing people. I was thinking about the world. People make such a big effort, yeah. but they we do it so unskillfully. I don't mean practicing, I mean right. life. You know, people work hard, they have suffering relationships and they want this and we want that and we do this and we do that. We, we expend a tremendous amount of energy, but we do it so unskillfully, we end up with <laughs> the world we have now. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about Oh, they practice so hard and they, they get such minimal result. I was thinking about human beings in life. <laughs> and practicing right. just means learning to be more skillful. How do you do that? You have to look back at yourself and see what it is you're doing in your life. What is your body? What is my emotions? What is my thinking? How do I? Uh, what is the root of my perceptions? You know, Buddha once said, people don't see the world as it is. You see the world as you are. So that means, you know, I always give mm. the examples like in, in Asia, it's really simple. Uh, it's a sunny day. So uh, Korean women, at least, they'll take an umbrella on a sunny day because they don't want their skin to turn brown. Because if their skin turns brown, it means they're probably a farmer you know, and they're, and they're poor. Mm -hmm. But I always say, but in America, if it's a sunny day, everybody wants to put on a bathing suit, white people at least want to put on a bathing suit, lay out in the sun and become brown because then it means I'm like Paris Hilton. I'm rich enough to just hang around and lay in the sun. So it's the same sunny day, mm -hmm. but a complete different reaction. The World Trade Center goes down, yeah. a whole lot of people are like, that's horrible, they attacked us. But a lot of people in the world, like I said before, thought, now America knows how it get, feels to get bombed. 
we've killed more than 3,000 mm. people. We just decided they're no good. Well, they think we're no good. Who's correct? Mm -hmm. We think we're correct. They think they're correct. If you stay with that mind, you just have a basic hell forever. And it's not just countries, everything, religions and political parties and husband and wife and parents and children and me and myself. My, my, I'm out on a Saturday night, I drink and I eat some food and my stomach says, wonderful, let's go home. And my mouth says, no, come on, I want more, I want more. Then your mouth and your stomach have a fight. If your mouth and your stomach can't get along, why do you think, why, why are you clamoring the government make world peace? It's not possible. Hmm. So how do you, you know, people come to you as a teacher, they're looking for a teacher, they come to the temple, they come to Musangsa, and they're like, I need help. How do you bring them to clarity? What, or how do you help guide them on that? I try and learn what their problem is. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know Lynchy said, our school has no doctrine. I just untie knots. <laughs> so when I became a Zen master, Sansanim said two interesting things to me. But uh, the more, well, one was just for me. And well, they were both just for me. <laughs> but one of the things he said, I went into his room to bow to him again and thank him. And he looked at me and he said, before students learn from teachers, now teachers learn from students. Well, boy, that has been a treasure for me. So my whole life is just trying to learn. Somebody comes in front of me. Well, what's going on? You know? And that means I have to be aware of what's going on in me too at the same time. And uh, how do I help people? Well, I don't, I, I don't know. But um, Dawi, he once said, nothing to cultivate. Simply get rid of your stupid ideas. If you see where you're stuck, where you're hindered, you can begin to take it away. If you see where somebody else is stuck, you can... Uh, hopefully skillfully point it out or touch it then they can free mm -hmm. themselves so you know it depends where somebody's stuck right. yeah and the only way to do that with other people is to do it with yourself that's why the basis of meditation is reflecting back on yourself it's like socrates said know yourself so you reflect back on yourself and then you begin to see, sometimes you can mm -hmm. begin to see the thought before the action appears. Actually, behind every emotion, in my experience, there's an idea, there's a thought in there that causes that emotion to appear. So if you see that and become clear about it, your emotion won't control you. In fact, your emotion will change. It's hard to do because we focus so much on outside things and we believe you know money will give me satisfaction love whatever that is will give me satisfaction you know we we think that satisfaction is going to come from outside things but that is always coming and going the only true satisfaction is realizing yourself your true nature then your whole life can become an art. I mean, it can become creative because you interact with everything that appears. You become one and then you function. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Zen Master Debangsanim encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for Musangsa Temple at musangsa.org. That is M-U-S-A-N-G-S-A dot org. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quanam Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of membership, which includes individual Kungan interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and use the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I am your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.